Hey Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene today, as this will be the first of two episodes in which we are covering Noir City Austin 2017, a film festival brought to us by the Film Noir Foundation and screening at the Alamo Drafthouse. For this special episode, we had the chance to sit down and have a conversation with one of our favorite voices in film today, Eddie Muller. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowland. Today finds us at episode 48, and we are quite thrilled to be joined by a very special guest today. He's the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation, an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, programmer of the Noir City Festival, host of TCM's Noir Alley, historian, preservationist, snappy dresser, and one of our favorite cinema scholars, the czar of noir, Eddie Muller. Oh, and that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy, very happy to be here this morning on a a very stormy, uh, evocative day here in Austin, Texas. So I I appreciate you guys making the trouble to, uh, or taking the time to come out and uh, talk to me on, on what is a pretty miserable day. We are here to talk about the Noir City Austin Film Festival, one of our absolute favorite events. We wait for it every year. We've been every year as well. This year's theme is The Big Knockover. We've got a series of heist films. Cole is very excited to see one of his all-time favorites in any genre, Kansas City Confidential. I'm waiting for Cash on Demand. Yes, yeah. So we've got a lot of milestone big titles and then also a balance of more obscure choices. So will you tell us a little bit more about the festival and how you came up with this year's theme? Well, the heist movies are something I've always uh, played around with for a number of years. Like I wanted to do this, but I couldn't really uh, figure out how to get my hands around it. The San Francisco Festival sort of drives everything, but that's 10 days and I felt if I just focused on the classics after 10 days people were going to be like I know how this is going to end (laughs) so (laughs) not so um in San Francisco I I came up with this notion of starting with the classic films that we know you know in the film noir era and then running through the subsequent decades to show people like this is how the concept of a heist film changed right uh, as we all know, uh, if you're making a, a film in the 40s or the 50s, odds are they're not going to get away with it, you know. And then it was kind of interesting to see that progression where all of a sudden it's possible that they could actually get away with it or somebody's going to get away with it, maybe not who you expect. But when we came to Austin to do it, I talked to uh, Tommy Swenson, who was the programmer here at, the, at that time, and um, we decided, since it is a three-day festival and we're going to show 10 movies, that we could pretty much stick with the classic era. And then I could try to get as much um, variety into the lineup as possible, given that we were sticking in that like 10 to 15-year time span. So I guess the, the, you know, the big breakout here is... Uh, Cash on Demand, which is this very unknown British film that's just fantastic, and uh, Violent Saturday, which is widescreen, Vista Vision, Douglas Sirk meets film noir kind of thing. Uh, otherwise, I mean, all these movies are really, really great. I mean, there's not a, you know, I mean, I never programmed to have a dud in the lineup, <laughs> let's face it, you know. But sometimes you will put something in there just because it's like, wow, nobody's ever seen this before. Let's you know, kind of roll the dice and see if the audience likes it or whatever. But I'm sure the audience is going to like all these films because they're they're pretty uh, pretty tried and true. Well, we love programmers and talking programming. Tommy Swenson does a fantastic job. He put together a super crime series last year that was one of the best things I've ever seen. I think every cinephile probably has that daydream of if I had a theater or if I had my own festival, what would I show? And we host a monthly screening series ourselves, and one of the great joys of that is exposing people to stuff they've never seen before, Mm -hmm. showing our friends something new, and watching their faces as they're discovering this thing. And I noticed in your introduction to The Killers, 
you show a genuine joy when those hands go up for all those people that have never seen it before. Even though you've presented it maybe a dozen times or more by now. More. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a really sincere excitement that comes across when we see you on stage doing that. And what we love about your programming style is how egalitarian it is. There's something for everyone at every level of fluency with film noir. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm glad that you appreciate that because that is um, that is what I do, you know. And uh, I have called myself at times sort of an evangelist for noir, certainly, but I realize that it's for classic cinema in general. Because uh, you may have heard me last night say that film noir is the gateway drug to classic cinema, uh, which is sort of true for various reasons that we can discuss if you want, but. Um, my cinema education uh, has always been based on enthusiasm first. Like, like, I have to have a visceral reaction to the films. And as I got deeper into it, I found myself sort of turning away from a more academic approach to the films, honestly. And I didn't like people who tended to overanalyze the movies because I really felt people react to movies the way they want to react to movies, right? I mean, that's just, um, uh, if you choose to go in that direction and you want to understand all the different layers and what it could mean symbolically and all, that's, that's great. But that's not necessarily the right way or the only way, you know? And I, I have always had a bit of a difficulty with people who like, well, I understand this and no one else does. Mm. Because I'm sorry, but anybody can understand a movie like The Killers. Anybody, (laughs) right? I mean, they're going to react to it the way they want to react to it, whether it's just, oh my God, Burt Lancaster is, you know, so fantastic, or I love the cinematography, I love this or I love that. And somebody is going to get the whole thing, you know? So I, I really do... I kind of live for those moments where I say, who has not seen this movie before? And I try to see these people in the audience and it's like, you know, this person is 18 or this woman is 40 something. And why is she here by herself? You know, and I haven't seen this movie before. There was a a young woman who came to the movies last night who told Darl, who works at our information table and a merchandise table, she said, you know, I loved this movie. I didn't even know what it was. I was bored. I was bored. And I was looking for something to do, and it worked out timing-wise. She came to the movie last night. It was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. And she left saying, I'm coming back tomorrow. She came specifically, uh, she wants to see Crisscross Cross, because obviously I said, you know, Crisscross Cross is the de facto sequel to The Killer's all the same people, but blah, 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 blah. And she's like coming back. So to me, that's like mission accomplished. There you go. Speaking of finding those new favorite things, you did that for me first through your books. I came to you through Dark City Dames. Mm -hmm. It was an accident in the library. I thought, well, this looks interesting. (laughs) And then discovered I've got a hundred new things I get to go seek out right now. So it was that light bulb moment for me of, I've got all this new world of possibilities opening up, like Nightmare Alley, Mm -hmm. which I wouldn't have really known about before that. I think about that time in your uh, film education and mine. It's that period where things are opening up and you're so interested and open to all these new connections. So your books did that for me, and it led to so many other things. Do you remember that sort of light bulb moment for you? Did you have one of those? I don't know if it was a single moment. It was more like a pursuit. Like it, it, it built gradually because when I, when I started watching these movies, it was first on TV because I would watch them uh, on like Dialing for Dollars or whatever. And clearly they made an impact on me. And my I was very, very fortunate. I mean, two... Um, Wow, you can hear this thunder. It's amazing, yeah. (laughs) Let's Um, go watch the movies after this. Yes, (laughs) I'm all for that. Uh, There were two tracks that happened that that I think are very interesting, and and, uh, you can compare generations of film fans, right? When I started watching these movies, it wasn't 
that convenient or easy to see them, right? You had to really seek them out, right? Either on television or at movie theaters because I grew up in San Francisco and it was filled with repertory cinemas. I mean, every neighborhood seemed to have a rep cinema where you could go and watch these movies actually on the big screen, which is to me a huge advantage, right? Now, of course, they're all available on DVD or streaming or whatever. And it's almost like you have such an embarrassment of riches to choose from that you need somebody to tell you, go here and look for this because otherwise you can kind of seize up. It's like when I go online to like look at um, whatever it would be, Netflix or something, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to pick because I don't know what's good and I, you know, it's not a curated experience. So I'm very much into that. And so I don't know if there was a light bulb moment for me as much as it was following the trail like of actors, of directors. Uh, certainly, you know, my education, there was very little in the way of film scholarship when I was growing up. But what there was, I devoured it. You know, there were these uh, series of, uh, of cinema books or something, and I'd like collect them all, you know. And that's sort of how I... Uh, got into it and and honestly my books I appreciated those books being there but my books were a reaction to those because I thought those books were way too academic and later on I learned of course that a lot of these were people's like graduate thesis being published you know and it's like they're they're making a case for something instead of just exploring it passionately and giving you the backstories. I'm all about the backstory, you know? It's like, okay, so I, I can watch a movie like The Big Heat. I get it. I know what the, I know what that is. Then I'll read the novel and I'll say, it's really interesting. Why did this change? Why could it not happen the way it happened in the novel? And that's when you start to realize, oh, I see Hollywood's a business. This is the way it works. Artists are allowed to do this, but not that. Uh, and then you start getting into the backstories of the creators of these films and you realize, huh, I see, this is, uh, this is why these things take shape the way they do. Far too much film criticism, I feel, is just somebody watching the film and fitting that film into their preconceived idea of this is my idea of how cinema works and here I'll prove it to you by twisting this movie to fit my agenda, right, which I am not interested in at all. So, <laughs> I don't know, that was a long answer to no, you. I don't know if it made any sense. We but. talk about those same themes all the time on the show because that's what we're interested in. That's how we got started, making those connections, finding that actor or artist that you're interested in, and then discovering there are 50 other things that I can go find and enjoy by this person. But I'll, I'll bet I do something that you guys don't do. Yes. I have uh, actors, actresses, directors who I like so much I won't watch everything that they've done. Okay, that's the first time I've heard something like that. Tell because, me why. Because I want to have something to watch when I'm an old, frail old Okay. Man, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like when I'm 75 or 78 years old, I want there to be a Gloria Graham movie that I haven't seen. Mm -hmm. Good right? point. So it's like I'm Man on a Tightrope. I have not watched that film. That's like a Kazan film. Gloria Graham's in it. The whole, it's like I'm just saving that one. I'm just putting that one in my hip pocket, and it's like, I'll watch it someday. You know, now you might argue, now see, this is, I mean, this is a, a revelatory thing in a way, because you might argue, well, I've just given away my card as a, as a cineast or something, you know? It's like, really? You, how can you say you're an expert if you haven't seen that film? And it's like, because... I don't see where it's said I declare myself an expert. I'm a film guy. I'm a film lover. I, you know, I want to have a Gloria Graham movie left to mm -hmm. watch. You know, it's like cause she's not coming back to make any more. Unfortunately, know? no. So I'll let you know that Annette Bening is playing her in the oh no in a movie. Yeah, oh, she's great. Playing, she's she's doing Gloria Graham. Film stars don't die in Liverpool. They're, it's the end of her life, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how they how they handle that. It seems like an excellent piece of casting now that I think about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, she played Gloria Graham in The Grifters. Yeah. That was basically, she was doing Gloria Graham. You know, to her credit, she was doing a great Gloria Graham in that movie. 
Well, I'm thinking about Erica's Eureka moments. And for me, that is stuff like The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Our Gang Shorts, Laurel and Hardy. Those were all the things that were the first things I was shown that I got super excited about as a really young person. When that was happening, that was the early 70s. And so there was a 40-year span between when those things were made and when I was first encountering them. And I think about kids today who are in a similar situation. For them, it's the films of the 70s, which seems crazy to say out loud now that it's that close. But one of the things that we like to focus on is encouraging neophytes and how do we get younger viewers or people who are just beginning to discover their love of cinema to those films. Some of those people that might balk at acting styles that they feel are antiquated or stylistic conventions they don't quite get. How do we bring them over, like you said, the gateway drug, Mm -hmm. to understanding and appreciating classic film and noir in particular? Well, okay, here's an interesting point about that, and maybe I'm revealing a little too much of the secret here, you know? This is what we live (laughs) But um, this is one of the reasons why, in my approach, I do focus so much on the backstory. It's because I want to take people by surprise who think, oh, those movies are, you know, they're old-fashioned, they're corny, there's nothing edgy or dangerous about them. Well, I always make a point of saying this was dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, they had to have a production code to kind of stop them from being as dangerous as they could be. That's number one. So that's there's a reason why these things appear the way they do on screen and, you know, nobody ever gets away with it and blah, blah, blah. And the woman has to wear her blouse buttoned all the way up to the top and blah, all that kind of nonsense. But then I always tell the stories of the real life sagas of the people who made the movies because then you realize... Wow, these people, not only are they not corny, they are way more dangerous than anybody doing this stuff today, right? So that's a little bit of why I do that. They're like, because somebody said to me the other day, you know, wow, you always seem to be seeking out like the, the, the nasty story about somebody when you're talking about the movie. And it's like, well, you know, it's not just because I love that stuff. It, it also does accomplish something. It makes people, younger people, think of these movies in a different way. You know, it's like I, I can't come right out and say to them, you know, your grandparents were a lot more wicked than you realize. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't, I don't want to say that. But I use Lawrence Tierney or Gloria Graham or somebody as a surrogate. Like, let me tell you about this guy in real life, okay? And, and they were getting one tenth of this on the screen. But, it was a struggle to even get that one-tenth of this guy on the screen. So I find that has been very, very useful in, in convincing younger folks, like, there was a lot going on here, you know? And I think with film noir, it's interesting because I almost want to teach film noir in school as an American history course and not as a film course because the confluence of things that were happening at that time you know, right after the war and the politics of the time and the gender politics of the time and just what was happening in the arts that so affected everybody's creativity. I mean, that mid-20th century America is when it all kind of happened, you know. And I, I think film noir is really indicative of where America started to lose its innocence. Like, we won the war, but now it's like, who are we really and how do we deal with all this stuff that uh, a lot of it lingering over from the depression, you know, where we kind of hit rock bottom. Wars always manage to pull you out of rock bottom, you know, sad to say. But anyway, that, that's sort of my approach to this stuff is I, I have found that by focusing on all of it, the making of the films, the films themselves, the historical context, how the films influenced later filmmakers, it gives them a significance that uh, I think is attractive to to the neophyte. Like, I didn't know so much was going on in these movies, you know? Well, speaking of, that perfectly leads into my next question. Very good job, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. I think of, well, actually at this point, I used to think of noir as being quintessentially post-war American. And... In 2015, at the festival, a big focus was actually on some of the international choices. We saw those great Argentinian films. Mm -hmm. And that 
blew my mind a little bit. So clearly, noir doesn't have to fit into this very specific box. So why do you think that it endures and has this ability to transcend boundaries, geographical, temporal? Um, I think part of the reason is because there is an established iconography to the genre. I mean, no matter where you lived in the mid-20th century, you did kind of dress the same. I mean, the overcoats and the fedoras and all that. And now I think... Uh, and, and obviously, there, uh, the cultures influenced each other in a huge way that I don't even know we've come to realize quite yet, right? So I just, I think that it is primarily the iconography. There's this wonderful surprise when you realize watching a French film or an Argentinian film or when you see Toshiro Mifune and Drunken Angel or Stray Dog and it's like, I, I totally get this. I mean, it, this I understand what the corollary is in American cinema to this guy, right? And this has been a fascinating, this has been a fascinating experience for me because when I, obviously I had the same feeling as you when I started watching these films. And, and it's what the books and the scholars told us, that this was an American phenomenon. And then you realize, well, it's an American phenomenon because Hollywood produced more movies than any place else in the world, right? If the Nazis hadn't come along, Ufa might be the, you know, Berlin might be the film capital of the world were it not for the Nazis, right? And noir may have obviously been there, you know, after the Weimar Republic and the whole thing. And if if history had worked out differently, noir could have been a German thing entirely. But I think you see the influence, you know, in the cinematography and the style uh, it crosses all these boundaries. So when I saw that Argentinian film, I don't know if we sh- showed that here last year, it's called A Penison Delinquente, uh, Hardly a Criminal. It was like this guy saw Brute Force and The Naked City. He saw those two movies and said, let's make a movie that combines the two of them. And it was just like watching a, a Jules Dassin film made in Buenos Aires. And, and to me, that was just like, this is incredible. You know, the, and then Hugo Fragonese, the director, comes to Hollywood. He ends up making Hollywood movies. He marries Faith Demirg, who was a Howard Hughes discovery. She ends up going to Buenos Aires and making movies. This happens all the time, right? I mean, this is the subtext of all of cinema. And it doesn't really get written about that much. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I don't quite get the mentality that, that wants to pin this stuff down and say, you know, this is an American phenomenon. Or, you know, you can't tell me that film noir existed prior to 1941 or after 1959. It's like, really? I mean, I, I don't understand the value of containing it so so drastically right uh it's just that weird need to be right about something and i have no interest in being right about something (laughs) i have a great interest in being interested in something you know so if you see examples and you know people say all the time you know i had somebody once complain you know to me directly like your work has diluted the notion of noir because you've you've expanded it too too much. It has no meaning anymore. Apparently, they right? worked at the official film noir estate, and they were I, I had guess, to manage. I the guess. But legacy. it's like, but but I I always make a point of saying, look, I'm sure you know I've had Mamie Van Doren at my festivals, right? I am not going to try to sell anybody on the idea that Mamie Van Doren represents film noir, right? But if if I call Mamie Van Doren and say you want to come out and do an interview with me and we'll show Guns, Girls, and Gangsters, and she says yes, I'm not going to say I'm sorry, Mamie. It's not really <laughs> film noir, you know. So so that's like my approach to all of this stuff, and and that's why you know I have this. Uh, I'm not going to call it a bully pulpit, but I can get up there and say you know okay I'm showing this movie I don't really think this is film noir, but here's why. Right. And I mean, even on the, the TCM show, I mean, I'm, I'm programming stuff that I would question whether this is film noir or not, but I have a reason for showing it. And I think it's valuable to see it. 
And my attitude is, yeah, if you have to put a package on it and wrap it up with a bow and call it film noir in order to get somebody to watch it, what the hell's the problem with that? You know, honestly, the debate about is this film noir or isn't it film noir is part of the reason why it has stayed so popular. There, I mean, there's no question about that. I love it when I hear people leaving the theater and they're, I, you know, but I don't really think that's film noir. It doesn't bother me when they say that because it's like they're going to go to a bar and they're going to talk about it. And it's like people are actually thinking about this stuff. Right. You know, High Sierra is a great example of that just from last night. It has noir tendencies, but it's not a full-fledged noir, I wouldn't say. But anyone who would pass up the opportunity to see that thing <laughs> exactly. is nuts. Yeah. You'd miss Pard, first of all. The best part. part the cool part, dog. Part with the underbite. Part. I talk, I said in my introduction, it's like, you know, it takes a special dog to like undercut Ida Lupino and Humphrey Bogart, you know. Part does it. And they did the thing running after the car, not once, but twice. <laughs> they did it twice. I'm just really angry that they pinned the whole thing on the dog. Oh, but that's what's so great patsy. about it. That's what's so great about it. Now, see, to me, that was the most noir element of the movie. It's like, this is the whole thing. It's like the dog just wants to see his buddy again. And there, and he walks out into the open. Uh, we're spoiling the whole movie for people who haven't seen it. You know? Yeah, okay. So, But I agree. And it's funny that a lot of people would say, somebody said to me last night leaving the theater, how could you say that wasn't noir? Oh my God, that was totally noir. Because it ends quite badly. Right. And there are a lot of people who think, well, if it ends badly, it must be noir as as though like tragedy throughout history <laughs> has been called noir. You know, it's like, no, it's just going to end badly. Everybody's going to be dead. Is Shakespeare noir? <laughs> right. Jacobean tragedy? Is that noir? I don't know. But uh, yeah, it helps. It earns it bonus points if it ends badly, clearly. Well, speaking of the Argentinian films, that makes me think of the restoration and preservation projects that the Film Noir Foundation does. As is often the case with these labors of love, I'm sure ready cash isn't just laying around in huge piles. <laughs> if only, yeah. <laughs> so with limited resources, how do you decide which are the titles we want to go after? How do you go about tracking down elements? How do you decide to devote the time and limited resources you have? And also, how much are you thinking about distribution post that process, the streaming platforms, home video, all that stuff. Okay, well, how, how long is this show? <laughs> <laughs> this is the stuff we love, though. This is the stuff that nobody else talks about. Okay, well, here, here's the thing. It, all this has changed so radically over the last few years because when we started, I mean, here's the deal. The Film Noir Foundation started because we had a windfall that I was not expecting from the festivals in San Francisco. Right? It's a 1400 seat theater. We rented the theater out and it was like, wow, we're actually making money here. I mean, this is like real money. And and I felt like it was not my place to keep that money, right? Like I had a good idea, it worked, blah blah blah. But that's when I said, you know, like you'd mentioned reading my books, there were movies that I had written about in my books that I, when I was then asked to program festivals, I can't find these as films, right? There's no 35 millimeter print. I saw it on some lousy VHS taped off TV, but try finding the print. And then that was my extracurricular cinema education, which I knew nothing about when I started doing this, it was all about, you know, how, where do these prints reside? How do you preserve them? All this kind of stuff. So over the years, this has changed. At first, uh, The Prowler was the first movie that we restored. And I restored it because I was the guy who was destroying the only print that existed because I'd show it. And every time I showed it, it deteriorated a little bit more. And it's like, I, I don't want to be the guy who ruins this movie. I want to be the guy who rescues this movie, right? So that required finding an original negative and, and making the prints and all this stuff. It's very, uh, it's very complicated. There are only so many archives you can go to, and then it becomes a total detective story. Then it's like there's got to be one somewhere, and you're going to either find it in a film archive or you're going to find it in somebody's closet. I mean, there's, there isn't a lot of in-between, <laughs> right? So, but over the years, as the business has changed, right, and, and so where do you show these films? 
right? There are fewer and fewer theaters where you can show them. There are fewer and fewer qualified 35 millimeter projectionists to actually screen a film that you just spent $90,000 restoring. It's like you don't want to hand the print to somebody who's going to damage it. And, and then you now get into, well, it, it's very different restoring a film to show it as film and then transferring that to a digital medium and selling it. That's a totally different game, which is something I never wanted to be involved in because I thought I don't want to spend, that wasn't my charter, was to spend money making digital product. My charter was preserve film, right? But now you can't get away from it. So it's something that we definitely think about. And, and we had success with uh, Woman on the Run and Too Late for Tears with Flickr Alley, which is a, a great company. You know, Flickr Alley and the Film Noir Foundation have a great relationship because we both agree that we're not in this to get rich. Mm -hmm. We are in this to preserve these films, right? It just so happens that Film Noir, as we've been discussing, is something that people do relate to. I mean, more than the the usual older film, more than silent cinema, more than screwball comedy. You know, pre-code is also very, very popular right now. But I would say that film noir and pre-code are the two things in classic American cinema that you're not going to lose money putting those out as a as a DVD or a Blu-ray. Hopefully. Fingers still crossed. We still haven't broken even, but I know we're not going to lose money on that, okay? As for how you decide to do it, all these things have to be taken into account, right? What's the historical significance of the film? Is it something missing from an, a significant filmmaker or actor or actress's filmography, right? Like The Prowler was like, okay, Joseph Losey was a major filmmaker, but why can you not see that movie that people were calling his best American film, but you can't see it, right? So that was like a no-brainer for us. Then there's there might be a film like Woman on the Run that I've seen, and I say, I, you know, I think this movie is fantastic, but there's no print, nothing. I mean, and it I become obsessed with, you have to resurrect this movie so that people can actually see it. So there's, there's a lot of these factors. And then with the Argentine films, it, it really was a case of the entire world has shut out this country. For whatever reason, this country does not register on the cinephile scale for creating great cinema. Just, that just never happened, right? And, and I fortunately met this guy, Fernando Martin Pena, who knows more about film in Argentina than anybody in the world. And we became very trusted colleagues. And, you know, our goal is to not just resurrect a few noir films, but to resurrect Argentine cinema. Like there was a lot going on there, you know, before the 1950s. And, the, and so that's, that's our, our goal, you know. And, and noir is just the way to pry the lid off and to get people looking at this stuff. You know, we did a series of five, uh, five or six film series at uh, MoMA in New York last year uh, of Argentine film noir, and it, uh, every show sold out, and it was a revelation. Because literally people weren't like, it was, I had no idea. I had no idea these movies even existed. That's exciting. <laughs> Back to The Prowler for a second. As an example, that was in a recent episode of your new series, Noir Alley, on TCM. How did that relationship come about? Uh, the, my relationship with TCM? Yes. <laughs> That's kind of a long story. It's been a long developing saga. And I'm sure you get a different answer if you ask people at TCM how it came about. But I will, I will tell you that the way it came about was Dark City Dames, the book that you referenced earlier. They approached me kind of sideways back when that book came out, which was like 2002, I think, because they wanted to do the original Summer of Darkness series and they wanted to get those actresses that were in my book, they wanted them to appear in studio talking about the movies, but they didn't want me. <laughs> Cause because I, you can't tell a story. You're not good on camera. No, no, no. I, I, I get it. I mean, I wasn't yet the czar of noir, okay. right? So they, and this is very interesting to think about now. The, the person they wanted, 
and I'm, I'm going to offend the guy they ended up with, and I apologize, Scott Glenn, but the guy they wanted to interview all these women was Alec Baldwin, who is now like one of the faces of TCM now, right? And, and, and little did we know back then that Alec Baldwin actually really knows movies, and he's quite a movie-savvy movie guy. But they wanted a movie star. And even TCM succumbs sometimes to this thing of, well, these actresses who were actually in the movies back then, nobody's going to know who they are. We need a movie star, a contemporary movie star, to introduce you to these other actresses, right? Anyway, that's, that's how all that came about. And that's how they knew me. And I, honestly, I ended up writing the questions for Scott Glenn because he didn't really know <laughs> too much about the careers of these women. And so that was my first interaction with TCM. And then, honestly, I had my film festival in Hollywood that I'd been doing for a number of years. And then when TCM decided to do a festival, annual festival in Hollywood, I had their dates. Right. I had the dates they wanted. It's a pretty noir bargaining chip it, it for was, you. It, it, I, I equate it completely to like organized crime. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you want in on my territory? Okay, we're going to have to make a deal here, right? So what was funny was they did not want Easter. They had to avoid Easter at all costs because most of their attendees come from around the United States and they want to be home for Easter. So it's like, we don't want to schedule on Easter, Right, and I had the dates around Easter, and I said, "I don't care. My my audience doesn't really care about Easter. They're not, they're, you know." So, so uh, I'm the guy who will show Caged, right, with Eleanor, the, the greatest, the, the mother of all women in prison movie. I show that on Easter. Yeah, that's like my Easter movie, right? So, so we worked it out, and then I said, and, and you know, and obviously in exchange for getting these dates that you want that I previously had booked. Uh, let me introduce a couple of movies at the festival. And and honestly, there's been like no looking back. So it, it's been a nice gradual thing, but now I, I definitely do feel like part of the family now. What are you most excited about as this series unfolds? Uh, it's a combination of things. I think it's trying to find that balance between reaching new people, creating a new audience, and I'm not going to lie, I mean, that's, that is one of the reasons I am at TCM. I believe they see me as someone who effectively straddles the hardcore uh, movie fans. I have credibility with them, but I think I also, my approach appeals to younger people. I mean, I'm not a young guy anymore, but I, I can kind of skew younger for those people. It's like, oh, that old guy, you know, maybe he's okay. He's kind of cool, you know. So So that works for them and I also really hope to to do uh, to some degree what I do with my own festivals which is at some point I'll, I think I'll be able to bring in the unexpected films uh, take this in a slightly different direction uh, I mean I understand that it doesn't you know I have my own thing and I'm able to do much more of what I want to do in my own world with the Noir City Film Festivals and the Film Noir Foundation than I can really do on, on TCM. But it, it's a really nice fit. I mean, they, they appreciate what I do. They respect what I do. And I completely understand, you know, they're, they're a big corporation. And uh, it's not like I can just walk in and do exactly what I want to do. Uh, I, I will play by their rules and we'll find this nice little sweet spot where we can everybody gets what they want. So I, I think that's what's what's shaping up here. And I will tell you one other thing about it that yeah. I really appreciate is they don't they don't edit me at all. <laughs> you know, I write all my intros and outros, and I pick the movies within reason. I mean, the movies have to be in license to TCM. Right. It has to, you know. And uh, so you know, just for example, uh, you know, I'll pick. A year's worth of movies, right? Or 48, because I don't, uh, there's a month that I have off. 48 movies out of like 150 that are in play, right? And then I can color outside the lines a little bit it, within reason, right? I gave them 14 movies the other day. It's like, I want to show these 14 movies, right? Whatever we have to do to make this happen, let's try to get these, these 14 that are not in the in license pool. So we're working on it. 
you know, six of them we've already nailed. So we're, we're, it feels good. I thought, I think we both thought the intro, especially for the Prowler, was so good. Such a good mix of exposition and interesting story and enough to get you through and get you excited. And it wasn't unnecessarily short. It didn't feel like it was rushed. It just was, oh, wow, yes, I cannot wait to see this. Good. Now. That's exactly what we try to accomplish in, in the intros. You know, I, I don't honestly know how long they are. <laughs> I mean, I know how much I write to do an intro. Like, I want to talk about this, I want to talk about that. And they say, nope, this, this feels good. And um, I'm glad, I'm very happy to hear you say that. I appreciate it. To get back to the festival currently, the Austin version of this, the Alamo Drafthouse, where this is screening, is our temple to film here. And Tim and Carrie League have built this amazing thing where no talking, no texting, you respect the film, it's like our sanctuary. <laughs> it seems like the perfect place for you to have the festival. How did you develop a relationship with the Alamo Drafthouse? Um, you know, that's a good question because I have known Tim and Carrie for a number of years and I've actually done, I've done a lot of shows here before it was Noir City. So do you guys remember Kayla? Kayla Janice? Yes, you remember definitely. Kayla? Yeah. I think it was actually Kayla who, who got the whole thing rolling. I think she was aware of me and I think she said to Tim, we should have this guy come here and do a show. I'm trying to remember what the first movies were that I showed here. I think it was a film noir double bill. And then I came back and did a thing. Uh, we showed Detour and I came with Ann Savage and had her here. Wow. And I remember Richard Linklater was not here but he sent an emissary with his detour poster to have <laughs> Anne sign it. Then I came back and did an event with Tab Hunter because I wrote Tab mm. Hunter's uh, autobiography with him and we came and did an event with Tab. And so there's been a lot of stuff and, and I've just known Tim and really appreciated him and, and what he's accomplished. You know, We've known each other for a long time. Now, of course, he's in my neck of the woods. He's got a Alamo in San Francisco now which was an extraordinary thing. I mean, the theater that he's in in San Francisco was just sitting there derelict for decades, for my, essentially my entire lifetime almost. And then Tim came in and, and has totally revitalized it. So, yeah, I have great admiration for him. I might send an emissary too if I had to get Ann Savage to sign something because she is terrifying. <laughs> yes. In detour, at least. I don't know that I would feel safe. Well, bringing it to her myself. <laughs> having read Dark City Dames, she is amazing. And I love all the photos in that, especially uh, I was just looking through my copy the other day to make sure that I was asking everything that I wanted to ask. And there's a great one of her fishing. And it's odd to see ooh, that yeah. lady. <laughs> yeah, she and was uh, all those women were amazing. That's still like my favorite book that I've done. Just because of how whatever it is as a book is one thing, but my story of writing the book and getting to know them, I'm, I'm looking forward to putting it out again because I now uh, own the rights to the book and I'll be able to do another edition at some point where the afterword will be really great because I'll be able to tell all these stories that I couldn't actually put in the book uh, and a lot of them about my relationships with these women. It was pretty fantastic. Of course, on a bittersweet note, when I finished writing that book, you know, they were older women. And I said, man, here are, here are six funerals that I really don't want to go to. Mm. And now that, that has come to pass, right? So, but the good part is when you're a movie star, you, you stay that age for all time, right? And uh, it, it's fantastic. I think they all understood that they led, even though some of their lives didn't turn out exactly as they would have preferred. Uh, they still had those movies, right? And it's like, so here comes this guy late in my life who wants to talk to me all about this stuff. And it, to some of them, it was a great surprise. And, a, and a, I was very happy to play that role in their life so late in their lives and, and give them this little last hurrah kind of thing. So uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you like that book. Yeah, it meant a lot to me. It still does. Uh, it was a big turning point in my life. I'm very happy to hear that. I mean, it certainly changed my life writing that book because I um, there was something about 
having these women reveal so many intimate details of their lives to me was really, really significant. And I learned so much writing that book that, that that's why it's my favorite. You know, it was like an invaluable experience. And either in the afterward or later, I'll tell you some, some of the amazing stories that uh, transpired in, in doing that book. Holy Grail finds. <laughs> Do you still have any of those left? Are there still new discoveries to make? Do you have any of those that you still really want to track down and haven't yet? Uh, yeah, of course there are. You know, and, and I have a, I'm going to disappoint you a little bit here. Uh, I, I'm a little superstitious about saying what we're looking for because if I don't find it, I don't want people to say, well, he failed on that one, you know, because I don't, I don't like that. Right? Understood. So, no so, problem. But here's the, the thing that has, when I started doing this, there were films like that. The Prowler was definitely one. Too Late for Tears was definitely one. Uh, the film Try and Get Me was uh, absolutely like a holy grail. We got to find this and, and rescue this. Now, I, in terms of the American films, I think what we're going to find at this point, we're not going to find a spectacular unknown film starring Burt Lancaster. And, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. There are a lot of B-movies. Uh, you know, there's a film that we just showed in Hollywood called Quiet Please Murder. We just right? watched it. Isn't it like a hoot? I mean, it's just, it this is, is amazing. It's very dark. It's like has this goofy comedy to it. But George Sanders is unbelievable in that movie. It's like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing in this movie? I mean, he's a total like S&M freak. And he like, <laughs> he when he gets the handcuffs on, it's like, oh my God, this is... Yeah, yes. so those kind of finds. But here's the thing that's interesting about what I do now is I don't always have to find the film and restore it myself. This is one of the benefits of being the czar now is like I, I can, a studio will actually listen to me when I say let's go deep in that vault and we want to see, we know there's a picture from 1942 called Quiet Please, I had never seen it, right? But now I'm in a position where it's like, I want to show it, even though I haven't seen it. Let's just show this thing and find out what it is, right? So the discovery, and I love doing this, it's like, uh, and I have no qualms about getting up in front of an audience and saying, I haven't seen this movie. I scheduled this because I really am dying to see what this is. We're going is, on an right? adventure together. And you guys are going to see it at the same time I'm seeing it, and you know, let's do this thing. And, and sometimes it's a, it's a glorious discovery like that movie. Anyway, but the, the point of this is, I think I'm now finding films overseas. Uh, the Argentine films, uh, Mexican films, Japanese films. You know, I've recently, uh, you know, there's Indian noir from the 50s which is like, you know, the running time of four American films. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I, that's where I think a lot of the real interesting stuff is going to come from. So, yes, I'm looking for films that I don't even know exist yet. And it's like, oh, wow, this is going to be great. Yeah. And, and it's great fun because I have people in a network all around the world who will send me stuff and say, have you heard of this? Have you seen this? Or I just saw this for the first time last week from from people who tape everything off TV who you've never heard of to uh, Bertrand Tavernier, you know, sending me links to, you know, you need to watch this movie, you know, uh, it's, a, it's an undiscovered Edward L. Kahn film, you need to see this, right? It, so I will never run out of stuff to uncover. Well, in addition to noir, you've also written about the history of Grindhouse Pictures as well. <laughs> and I was wondering... Aside from noir being near and dear to you, are there other genres that you really love and pursue when you're not being the czar of noir? Jalo, creature features, sexploitation stuff? Um, yes, uh, nothing to the extent uh, with the film noir. But yeah, there are other genres, but I leave that to other people to, you know. I mean, we mentioned Kayla earlier, you know, and she was, you know, her cannibal movies and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And she was just in all this crazy horror stuff. And so she has been, to me, like a mentor. So if I want to watch this stuff, I'm not going to go crazy with it, but I want to see the cream of the crop and see if I like it. 
so she's been very helpful to me that way. You know, I like good stories. I mean, basically, that's what I look for when I watch movies and things. You know, the, the noir resonates with me for many, many reasons. You know, the iconography, uh, I relate to it. I like that mid-20th century vibe. Uh, I like the black and white cinematography. You know, I'm not going to be a, a Technicolor junkie, and, you know, I don't really care about all the details that go into the widescreen stuff. But I, I follow interesting stories. That's sort of the thing. So I like Anthony Mann's westerns mm-hmm. almost as much as I like his film noirs. And his spectacles are pretty good, too. You know, I recently saw Fall of the Roman Empire, and it was like, wow, this movie is timely. <laughs> <laughs> After all these years of living, breathing, proselytizing about it, in some instances... Are there still performers, artists, technicians that you think are still, to this day, unnecessarily underrated? Yes, Andre de Toth is one. There are certain writers who, I think, in some respects, the Film Noir Foundation and Noir City has sort of uncovered uh, their contributions, like William Bowers, who was a screenwriter who really didn't get his name on a lot of pictures, but our research has shown that he wrote the final script for so many of these movies that now we can definitely see like the Bowers touch in so many of these films. And a lot of those films, you know, he he did a lot of work for Universal in the 1940s, and a lot of those movies have never been released, you know, on DVD or anything. I'm I'm I got my fingers crossed I'm going to be part of that resurrection as well, you know, like Crisscross that we're showing uh, at the festival here. You know, Bowers did the final draft of Crisscross and all the great wisecracking dialogue and everything. That's that's all him. And uh, yeah, and I, I do believe there are just still a lot of people who are underappreciated. I mean, a guy that I really enjoyed was Felix Feist, who did uh, The Devil Thumbs a Ride and The Threat and uh, This Woman is Dangerous and a film that I love called Tomorrow is Another Day with Steve Cochran and Ruth Roman that I think, honestly, if that had a little, if the ending stayed dark and it didn't have the last two minutes, I, I think that film would be considered a classic and, and would, be, would have already been resurrected as one of the great noir films. So yeah, I think there are, um, the answer is yes. yes. There are still people there <laughs> waiting to be discovered. And the other part of that is, even when they're big stars, you kind of wonder, like, what happened? Like, why why does nobody know Alan Ladd today, right? I mean, Alan Ladd was Paramount, right? Paramount and MGM, the two big studios in Hollywood at, at that time. And Alan Ladd was the biggest star at Paramount. So why are his pictures virtually unknown today? I mean, aside from the Blue Dahlia and stuff, I mean, you can't see. And a lot of his movies have totally disappeared. We, uh, this past year, somehow resurrected, thanks to Universal, Calcutta, which was a major picture he made with John Farrow, right, who was Paramount A-list director, their big guy. And uh, that movie had totally vanished. And now at least it's back in a DCP, not a 35 millimeter, but there is a DCP of that movie. Yeah, everybody knows Humphrey Bogart, but I'm determined that everybody know John Garfield as mm. much as Humphrey Bogart, you know? So that's, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people stick and become icons, and then it, it is weird to me that it doesn't happen for other people, but they've made all these tremendous movies. And it's like, just keep showing the movies and they will stick in public consciousness. How has it been for you lately embracing social media the way you have? Because I know I you have. just got on Twitter for the first time, <laughs> which I was amazed to see, surprised to see, in fact. TCM made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's okay. You know, I'm in some respects, I'm just very old-fashioned, mm-hmm. and I do a lot of stuff. Right. And I can't, I'm always afraid, like, oh my God, it's going to be a time suck. You know, if you get on Facebook or Twitter or something like that, it's going to blow your day. But I'm realizing that's not necessarily the case. 
it's the it's the old thing of you know you have to use the tool don't let the tool use mm -hmm. you you know and uh so it's it's good we all know what the pitfalls of social media are i don't like the in some case i don't like the anonymity of it and interestingly you know when i went on twitter for the first time and and a lovely woman named mariah gates at tcm who does their social media like hooked me up you know i didn't know what and she was like explaining it would have been a great video to see me trying to figure out what she's talking about and and it's like eddie now you push this and you do this and i'm like okay whatever you know but i was i was noir czar noir underscore czar because somebody else had eddie muller right and and i said and i said you know i don't want to be noir czar because i i want to be transparent on social media this is a big thing with me yeah i don't like people being anonymous on the internet I, except you know like anonymous right <laughs> <laughs> then i understand the point of being anonymous right. but um you know because then people can can act out and, and which i don't particularly approve of you know i look at the world as one big bar room right that's my thing and it's like if you wouldn't say this to my face in a bar room don't say it to me on the internet right i mean that's just social etiquette as far as i'm concerned so anyway I'm I'm back. To, I got Eddie Muller now. I guess they oh, like good. they like shot and killed this guy. Who had it. I don't I don't know. But uh, but I've got it now. I don't know what they did with the body. But uh, you know, so I'm I'm happy with that. Although there are people who said, "Dude, you shouldn't have given up Noirzar. That was like that was the coolest handle." You know, I'm like fine, whatever. But you know what you're getting. It's I am Eddie Muller, and that's my picture, and that's me. What are you looking ahead to that you can share with us, foundation-wise, festival-wise, future plans? Okay, future plans. Uh, well, I'm ramping up. Eventually, we'll do a huge 20th anniversary show in San Francisco. Oh, great. And it'll be even closer to the 20th anniversary in Hollywood. You know, the biggest festivals in San Francisco, the first festival I did was in Hollywood. So we're doing those. Uh, we have a couple of projects in the works, uh, restoration-wise, and one is definitely set. I'm not going to say what it is. And one is in the works. I'm hoping it comes to pass. Uh, we will definitely be putting out a couple of more films uh, with Flickr Alley. Uh, we will be putting out uh, Los Tayos Amargos, the Argentine film from 1956, and we'll be putting out a uh, repeat performance uh, which is like an eagle lion picture from 1947 that's pretty pretty cool. Uh, it's like a Twilight Zone noir episode, a little more supernatural aspect than we're used to. And I have high hopes that we will be doing more, there'll be more Blu-ray and DVD releases in various permutations, either with the Film Noir Foundation or just me, or something maybe involving TCM and Noir Alley doing a co-branding thing. Uh, anything, anything to get these movies out and on on the radar screen. I mean, that's how, how it's packaged and bundled and all that stuff. We can work all that out. Let's just get these things out there, you know. And if I have one... You know, I guess what I'll say in closing is if I had the thing I'm most happy about with the way all this has worked out, like being the czar, is that it it actually has raised my profile and the profile of noir enough that I don't think there's any question that people now are looking at these films and getting them out there on their own, right? And if I have anything to do with that, I appreciate it, but because sometimes I can point to their archive and say, you know, you've got these films that you could actually do something with these, right? They may be titles that they, like, nobody's going to buy that. Nobody's going to look at that. And it's like, no, 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 look, there's a show on TCM. We do this, right? I mean, I'm able to do these festivals all around the country. Rethink it, you know, Quiet Please Murder, an unknown <laughs> movie from 1942, trust me. Pull this out. Make sure the print's in good condition. You can do something with this movie. So I don't have to be directly involved. I appreciate when I'm indirectly involved 
just like shining a light and saying there, there's life here still you know pull it out and let's let's see it well that brings us to the end of episode 48 we will put links to all of this stuff in the show notes uh, but we just wanted to take a second here to encourage everybody to visit the film noir foundation at filmnoirfoundation.org there you can keep up with their projects and restorations donate to the cause if you feel so inclined the Noir City Festival website will always have the most up-to-date information about the current incarnation of the festival. And don't forget to tune in to TCM on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern as Eddie guides you through the dark end of the street on Noir Alley. Thank you so much for your time today, Eddie. We appreciate this so much. It's been a real thrill to be able to sit here and have this conversation with you today. Uh, it, was, it was great fun. I appreciate it very much. And I, uh, I really appreciate your enthusiasm uh, for this and your your approach to the whole thing is absolutely fantastic so thank you we'll be back in a couple of days with our wrap-up of the Noir City Austin Festival 2017 but before we sign off I also wanted to say thanks to Darl Sparks and Ann Hawkins from the Film Noir Foundation for helping us put this together we could not have done it without their help and I also wanted to say a special thanks to Tim and Carrie League for their immeasurable contribution to Austin's film culture and especially for their hospitality today in providing us a place to have this conversation. We appreciate it a great deal. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 